Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who having not seen you, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. As far as the reading of God's Word, may He add His blessing to it. In conjunction with it, I invite you to look at Lord's Day 17 of the Heidelberg Catechism on page 879 in the back of the Red Psalter Hymnal. Page 879, on the bottom of the first column, Lord's Day 17, question and answer 45. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. Beloved of the Lord, on the first Easter Sunday morning, the women who had been following Jesus for some time went to his tomb, prepared to anoint his body with spices, as was their custom. When they arrived at the tomb, they were surprised to find the stone rolled away, and the tomb was empty, and there was an angel there, who said to them, Do not be alarmed. He is risen. It was glorious good news. 
so glorious and so good they could hardly believe it. They didn't understand at first. They went and ran and told the apostles, and the apostles didn't believe it at first either. Thomas wasn't the only one who doubted at first. They all doubted. They didn't understand. But within the space of 40 days, these who could not understand the fact that Christ had been raised from the dead were so thoroughly convinced of it that they were changed men and women who went forth in the name of Jesus to proclaim to the whole world and their voice still rings down through the ages to tell us that indeed Christ is risen from the dead. We confess in the Apostles' Creed that he was indeed raised from the dead. And our catechism lesson reminds us of what that means. But before we look into that directly, let me just remind you how important this is for the New Testament church. Let me give you a little sample of, just from the book of Acts, of, of the, the apostolic preaching of the resurrection. Declaring him raised from the dead was something they wanted to communicate on almost every occasion. In the very first sermon in Acts chapter 2, Peter says to the crowd, You put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, for it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God raised up this Jesus to life, and we all are witnesses of the fact. We all are witnesses of the fact, says Peter. All these disciples who were gathered with him, all who had little tongues of fire on their heads, he says, we're witnesses of the fact that God raised this Jesus from the dead. In the next chapter, Acts 3.15, uh, there's the account of Peter healing a man who had been lame. And then uh, he said to the multitude uh, who gathered around because he had done this miracle, he says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Again, he wanted to communicate that he and they were witnesses of the resurrection. In the next chapter, when they are called to account before the Jewish rulers, Peter says to the rulers, Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. In uh, that same chapter, after they had been released from prison, it says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 13, we find Paul in Perga saying these words, But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Thessalonica, and he says there, as, or it says of him, as was his custom, 
Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. That was his custom, to prove that from the Scriptures, that he suffered and that he rose from the dead. And again in Acts 17, in Athens at the Areopagus, Paul announced, For he, that is God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by a man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. In Acts 26, we find Paul before King Agrippa, and he, Paul, proclaimed that the Christ would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his people and to the Gentiles. Paul summarizes the gospel with these words in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The word gospel means good news. News is not opinion. News is what has happened. It is a record of events. And the primary event that the apostles proclaimed was Christ's resurrection from the dead. They made clear that he had died, that he had died according to the scriptures, that he had died for our sins, but he is not now dead. He is alive, for God has raised him from the dead. This is the key element of the gospel, and the catechism reminds us how important this is for us, that there are benefits that come to us. First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Now, it's saying there that Christ obtained righteousness for us, by his death, that is, he paid for our sins. He wipes the slate clean, and we are cleared of all charges. But he did more than just wipe the slate clean. He also won for us a righteous standing before God. You know, when a uh, criminal is charged with a crime, whether he's innocent or guilty, his Hope is generally to uh, to be found not guilty, that uh, he hopes that his defense attorney can create enough doubt so that the jury will come back and say, well, uh, we're not convinced beyond a, a reasonable doubt that this man is guilty, and so we declare him not guilty. But not guilty is not the same as being righteous before the judge. Imagine if a jury came back and said, we not only find him not guilty, we find him a perfect person, a perfect man, a perfect woman. This person is righteous, righteous in every respect with regard to the totality of the law. Of course, no jury is ever going to find that about any one of us. But it was true of Jesus. He won for us perfect righteousness, a perfect righteousness before God. But in order for that righteousness to be ours, he has to be alive. He has to be alive because, first of all, 
no one's going to put their faith in someone who's dead. You know, our country is facing all kinds of crises. We often hear of a constitutional crisis over this issue or that issue, over religious freedom or other such issues or the electoral college. All kinds of constitutional crises are affecting our nation. What would you think if I stood before you and said to you, I think the man to deliver us is George Washington. Let's all put our faith in George Washington to deliver us from the present constitutional crises that are affecting our country. Well, you'd think I was crazy, and I would be crazy to say such a thing. He's dead. What can he do to help us? Well, the same is true with regard to your salvation from sin. Put your faith in Jesus, but he's still in the grave. Well, he's not, but imagine if he were still in the grave. If he hadn't been resurrected, what could he do for us? He's still under its power. He has not yet conquered death. And if he hasn't conquered it, what hope is there for you and me to uh, be able to conquer it ourselves or with his help? He can't help himself, let alone help us. No, the only way we're going to put our faith in him is if he has conquered death. And indeed he has. And so the announcement, he is raised from the dead. And we should put our faith in him. But it's more than just that he's alive and, 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 and therefore we ought to put our faith in him. His righteousness is his righteousness and can only become our righteousness if we are united to him. You know, his, his righteousness is not in some reservoir somewhere or in some vault Somewhere, and, and if you and I just go to that reservoir, we can grab some righteousness or go, go to the vault and, and get some righteousness. Uh, no, it's His righteousness. It belongs to Him. It, it's in Him. And the only way it can become ours is if we are united with Him. Perhaps I can illustrate this. I, I, I struggle. I don't know whether it's a good illustration or not, but it's the best I can come up with. When... When my wife and I lived in Nurlandia, we came in contact with a lot of recent Dutch immigrants, both post-World War II immigrants and then some of their children, uh, when they uh, graduated high school or whatever, would go back to Holland to visit uh, aunts and uncles or grandparents if they were still living, and they maybe spend the summer in Holland and some of those young people who grew up in Canada uh, found husbands or wives in the Netherlands and brought them back to Canada, and they were in their land here as well. So there were really lots of recent Dutch immigrants in Norlandia. And we found that there was a custom among those Dutch immigrants that when a person, a married person, had a birthday, you congratulated not only the person who was having a birthday, uh, you would say congratulations on your birthday, and then you would turn, if it was a wo- uh, woman, you would turn to her husband and say, and congratulations to you on your wife's birthday. Or you'd say congratulations to a man and then turn to his wife and say to the wife, congratulations on your husband's birthday. In other words, husbands and wives shared Any honor that one of them had, any honor given to one, was shared by the other. Why did they share an honor that belonged only to one of them? 
Well, because they are united. United in a covenantal union. The covenantal union of marriage, which is a a mirror of our covenantal union with, with Christ and with God. And in that covenantal union, what one person has, the others get to share in. And so when we are united to Christ in covenantal union, when we are united to Him, His righteousness showers down on us and covers us. And so when we stand before the judgment seat of God, when we stand before the judge of all the earth, uh, who is Jesus Christ, because all judgment has been given unto Him by the Father, we're, we're clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have it through union with Him. But again, if He were dead, we couldn't have any kind of union with Him because He's living. Uh, we can have this. We are attracted to Him as someone who can help us. And when we come to Him by faith, when we enter into that covenantal union, uh, first by baptism and then confirmed by our faith, we are assured that His perfect righteousness also now covers us as well. And so He was raised for our justification. Romans 4, verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We're justified by sharing in the righteousness of our living Lord. That's a great benefit of Christ's resurrection, that he is alive and able to give to us the resurrection, the righteousness that he has won for us. But then the catechism goes on to describe another benefit, and that is that, second, by his power, we too already are raised to a new life. Through faith, we not only receive righteousness, but we also receive new life. Through faith, not only are you forgiven, but you receive his spirit. And the spirit that you receive is the spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Paul uh, wrote uh, to the Ephesians that uh, he wanted them to know a certain power and experience a certain power. And he says this in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, I pray that you may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead. You might know this incomparably great, immeasurably great power, which is the power that worked in Christ when Christ was raised from the dead. The power that raised him is now in you. And he wants you to to know that power. He wants you to experience that power. You know, apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul uh, wrote in 2 Corinthians that well-known passage, 1 Corinthians 6, about the way we once were and what we are now. He says, you, you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. 
Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Therefore, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation, new life, new power. This is what the world needs. You know, people are fighting over how to how to solve the world's problems. Uh, we need higher taxes. We need new government programs. We need uh, better schools. We need better uh, health care. We need better this and that and the next thing. And if only we could uh, organize our society in a, in a new and different way, you know, a different form of government or different uh, governmental principles. And everybody is looking to science or government or education to solve the plight, the human plight of misery that we find everywhere. But there's only one way that you can change humanity, and that's to change humans. It's not the system that's wrong. It's, it's us that's wrong. We need to be changed. And there's only one power that can change us. The power of the gospel. New life through Jesus Christ. And uh, that is the life that we have because Christ has been raised from the dead. You who were dead in your trespasses and sins, God has made alive and raised us up with Him. So therefore, we can now live new lives. But of course, with that new life comes the obligation to live it. And there's still, sadly, remnants of the old nature in us, and and the, the flesh and the spirit are at war with one another. But by the grace of God, through the Spirit, we have the power to put that old nature to death, to put off the old man and put on the new man. Paul writes in Colossians 3, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the, of the God. In other words, and then he goes on to describe how we need to put to death the old nature and put on the new nature day by day. Live that new life. Thank you, Father, for the forgiveness of sins, but thank you also for the new life in Christ. Help me to live that Christ, that life, day by day. And then he describes a third benefit, and that is that Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. A sure pledge to us. Since Christ has been raised, Christ was made human, like us, in every way except for sin. A human being died, and a human being has been raised to new life, never to die again, raised incorruptible. That new life is a powerful life. And since it's happened to one person, it can happen to others as well. You know, for a very long time, the scientific world the medical world, and the sports world were all agreed that it was humanly impossible for a human being to run a mile under four minutes. For centuries, you know, that people have been racing and timing races, they have said, no, that will never, ever happen. But on May 6th, 1954, Roger Bannister broke 
the four-minute mile. He ran a mile under four minutes. A fraction of a second, to be sure, but still under four minutes. And as soon as he did it, well, not right away, but, but within a very short period of time, other people began to do it as well. Professional runners and finally even high school runners were running sub four miles. If one person could do it, it can happen to others as well. People became convinced of it and it followed that others were raised as others were, were able to do it as well. And the same as regard to the resurrection. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. The resurrection has already started. It has already started with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it waits only his return until that time when all who have believed in him will be raised up if they have died or if they are alive at the time of his coming, transformed in the twinkling of an eye so that they too have incorruptible, glorious bodies like the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus Christ. His resurrection assures us that when he comes, we will be raised up with him. As you face death, and we all must accept that reality that sooner or later we're all going to die. As we face death, we face it with the assurance that Christ is coming, and when he comes, then we shall be raised up and made glorious like him. Death is all around us. We are outwardly wasting away, but inwardly resurrection life is already at work in us. That's a down payment of what is to come. And when he comes, our bodies also shall be raised. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, we would still be in our sins and we would have no hope. But Christ has been raised. Our sins are forgiven. We have new life. And we shall be raised with him. Let those truths bring you much comfort. Though outwardly we waste away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for this glorious truth. We thank you for this fact. This fact that the apostles bore witness to a fact and a witness that they sealed with their martyr's blood rather than deny. We pray, O Father, that we would not doubt but believe that indeed Christ has not only died for our sins but has been raised to newness of life so that we through faith in him may be counted righteous in your sight so that we might also be given new life now and that we also will be raised up when he comes again. Oh, Father, help us to have this hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.